You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it, We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. Good to see you, yes? All right, good. It's good that we're all on the same page. I always giggle a little bit at the the handshake because I'm a bit of an introvert and it is my least favorite part of the service by any means. So God bless you introverts for suffering through that one minute of time. Uh, The Lord, yes, you're welcome. (laughs) I love it. Um, Look, you're gonna need a Bible and you're gonna need to open it to Acts chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. We're only going to study three verses today, but they're three pretty great verses. While you're turning there, um, my first experience uh, with uh, what's called confrontational evangelism, I don't know, that's the wrong term for it, kind of, but you know what I mean? The, my first experience with standing and, and, and uh, speaking to somebody and trying to get them to you know, hear the gospel, you know, just people, somebody I don't know was at the State Fair of Texas. When I was in seminary, I was in an evangelism class and they said, okay, so in order to be in my class, you have to go down during the State Fair of Texas and you have to volunteer for a night at the, at the evangelism booth at the State Fair of Texas, which was a very interesting booth. It was right in the middle of one of the biggest, the big, you know, barns that they set up all of the interesting, you know, stuff. There was some lady who'd made jam next to us. And on the other side, there was a guy who was selling some kind of water filter. Guy across the way who was sitting in a chair the whole time trying to uh, watch us. He just thought it was funny. Um, we, you know, to draw people in, you kind of had to have a picture that was really interesting, I guess. And so uh, the, the guy who ran the, the event had put a big, a map of the seven dispensations on the back of the wall. Some of you are like, the what? Don't worry about it. But it was like a weird picture talking about the end of the world and there was a picture of Jesus who was hovering over the city of Dallas and souls were being sucked out of cars and they were all getting crashed and stuff like that. So, you know, people would stop by and go, what in the world is going on? And the moment they stop, you, you start talking to them. I'm not good at this, right? Like I said, I'm an introvert. So I, I found it really difficult. I, I'm really nervous. I remember starting a conversation with one guy and he was looking at the painting and I, he, I said, it's kind of weird, right? He goes, looks at me and goes, yeah. And I said, well, it's actually an interpretation of you know, what some people think is gonna happen at the end, end of the world. And so I started talking to him a little bit about the gospel and he immediately was not very happy with me. Uh, he walked away, and then he came back, and he started yelling at me. And then I was not sure what to do, because my first time, first time ever even doing this, you know, in a kind of a formal way, and he said, uh, he started yelling at me, and then the guy who was running the booth came over and was kind of kindly, and so I 
passed him off to that guy and I went behind the curtain and cried because I was like, oh my Lord, this is the worst ever. Anyway, the guy yelled for a good half an hour at our other guy, just top of his lungs yelling. We had to call the security. After it was all over, I went to the guy who had run the booth for 20 years. And I asked him, is that normal? And he started to giggle. <laughs> he said, the more you share the gospel with people, the more persecution you're gonna face. He was right. You know, some people don't, don't like hearing the good news. They don't perceive it as good. Jesus told us as much, right? Some people, sometimes you throw the seed on the ground and it hits the, the hard ground and the birds of the air come and pick it up and it's like it doesn't even make a dent in the heart of the person that you've thrown it into. You say, this is good news about Jesus and they're like, I don't think it's good at all. It's bad news because you're accusing me of sin. And they yell or get upset in some parts of the world. They start to tackle you and abuse you and shoot you. People have lost their lives sharing the good news of Jesus throughout the history of the church. It's, it's always been this way. And if you need proof, uh, the book of Acts in this passage that we're looking at right here in Acts chapter eight, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And I could tell you so many times in the history of the church where you could write basically the same thing. Just change the names. Places in China and the Southeast Asia, places even in the early days of Europe. It, it's always been this way. The more you share the gospel with people, the more persecution you will face. And so this is the question. If you're gonna be a faithful Christian, and you're going to represent Christ in the world. You're not just gonna, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna let it shine. If, if you're gonna live a life that smells like Jesus, is the aroma of Christ in your workplace and other places like that, and the Bible seems to say that that's gonna lead to persecution, how do you remain faithful when that kind of thing comes? What do you, how do you need to think about persecution so that you remain faithful and you continue to follow Jesus even though the persecution comes or the suffering comes? This passage actually gives a, a few ways. I know it's only three verses, but because it's three verses, let me give you three truths about remaining faithful in persecution. The first is persecution. Here's how you need to think about it. If you wanna remain faithful, you gotta remember that persecution is expected. Second, persecution is clarifying. And third, persecution's under control. It's expected, clarifying, and under control. So let's uh, study it together under kind of those three headings. First, persecution is, is expected. Look at verse one again with me of Acts chapter eight. Saul approved of his execution, his being Stephen's execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now look, uh, this is sort of a climax moment right here. You don't feel it because we haven't studied the whole of the book of Acts right now, and then you get the feel right at the point, you know, that the, the climax moment comes. So let me kind of go back for a second and show you in, in the beginning of the book of Acts, there are, like, there are like three scenes or three rounds, we can call it, between the religious authorities and the disciples. So here, in each case, it's interesting how Luke puts it together. In, in round one, game one, uh, what happens at the end of it is the, is the disciples just get, just get warned. There's a warning that they've given. So you, Peter and John, they go and they heal a, a lame guy. They start preaching a sermon in the temple because all the people come around and gather. The chief priests and scribes come out and say, you shouldn't do that in the temple. Instead, we're gonna grab you, put you in prison. And then the next day, they, put the, they take them before the, the ruling religious council. They stand there and they try to give an account for why it was they were doing this. They basically hand Peter the microphone and he's like, oh, thank you. And he starts, he preaches a sermon, essentially talking about how Jesus is fulfilling all the promises that the Jewish Messiah was supposed to. This Jesus who you killed, God has made Lord in Christ. So repent and be baptized, every one of you, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, of course, they don't like hearing this, and their response is, look, you, you can't go around accusing us of the death of God, right? You can't go around saying that we killed the Messiah because he wasn't the Messiah, so stop, warning, right? We're warning you, if you do this anymore, we're gonna get you, all right? Then round two, they go out, and of course, they don't stop preaching the gospel. In this case, they, they, they preach it even stronger, and the chief priests and scribes come, and they pick him up again, and they're like, we told you so, and they put him in prison. Now, the difference is the second time in prison, they get released in the middle of the night by a visit of an angel. Swings the door open, angel says, hey, I need you to go out and start, keep preaching. Just keep doing it. So they show up the next morning in the temple as early as you possibly can, and they start preaching. The same place that they got arrested, they go back to, and they preach even more. Sanhedrin all gets together, the ruling religious council gets all together, they're looking at each other and saying, bring in the prisoners. They go and look for the prisoners, but you know, the jail's empty. One of the attendants says, hey guys, I found them. They're in the temple, preaching. So they go off. Of course, the, the crowd loves it. The crowd loves what they're saying. The crowd loves them. And so, because they're afraid of the crowd, the ruling religious council and the leaders they sent to pick them up have to ask nicely, hey, can you guys come this time and just visit with us? We just want to have a moment. And so they do. They bring them in and they say, we told you not to do this at all. And Peter's like, look, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to God. And this time they're like, we're so bad at you. And what do they do at the end? They flog them. They whip them. Okay? So we've increased it. They're angry. Now, they would lock, they want to kill them. But there's too many people who like them. We, we need to wait for the people to shower on them. Well, eventually, 
Round three, Stephen. Stephen's doing these miracles all over the place and people are coming from all over and they love Stephen. Jewish religious leaders, of course, grab him and they pull him in and they say, you need to give an account for what you're doing. We've had witnesses who are, they were lying about him, who are saying that you're against Moses and you're against the temple. You're against basically all the religious traditions that we've ever had. And so Stephen, standing there, they say, what say you? Hand him the microphone, and just like Peter before, he's like, okay. But he stands up, and he preaches a sermon that doesn't end with repent and believe, all every one of you. He ends with a sermon that says, uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. You murdered the righteous one. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. There I said it. You can just feel, just, if you're standing there watching this little fly on the wall, you're watching this, you can just see, you know that little guy, what's his name? He's the little guy in that, in that, uh, in that Pixar show, he's a little red guy, and just about the, the pe people in your head, yes? Now he's, okay, I can't even remember what this stupid thing is called, but he's the little red guy, and then he says, and then all of a sudden fire comes out of his head. He's just so angry. Yes, that's exactly what takes place. They absolutely 100% freak out. And they decide that what was, what was you know, uh, went from um, frustration and warning to, uh, to, to uh, flogging is now gone to murder. And they kill Stephen. But not just Stephen. The next thing that happens, as we said a minute ago, is... Everybody scattered from everywhere. They scattered. They ran away. And you can understand uh, why. You can understand why. If, if you found out, look, if you were somebody who was a Christian and you were hanging out with the other Christians and, you know, like, I'm right on board with this. And you're showing up at the temple each day and you were hearing Peter and he was your guy and Stephen, you knew him and he was your guy. And you showed up every day and the chief priests and the other you know, leaders and the temple guard, they, they, they saw you every day with these guys, they would end up recognizing your face. And now, finally, they've killed Stephen and they're looking for somebody else to get. Would you stick around? No way. No way. You'd run for your lives. And that's why they, they just took off completely and ran for their, for their lives. You know, I, when I read this passage, and so many passages like this, and I hear stories like this about the church and other parts of the world throughout history, I, I've gotta tell you, it sounds so foreign to me. Doesn't it? I have never in, in my life been assaulted for preaching. Yeah, I get the stink eye every week from many of you, but I, I, I get, don't, I, nobody's ever come up and tried to attack me. No one shot me yet. 
Nobody chases me down afterwards. Nobody knows where I live and forms a, a mob and tries to come there or grab me and beat me up. I've, I've never faced any of that. Even, even sharing the good news at the Texas State Fair. What's the worst thing that happens? A guy gets angry with you and the more seasoned guy comes over and takes over and you go cry behind the, the, behind the, the drapes. I, I just, I don't understand how this can be normal. It's not, right? Like, it's not normal for Christians to be persecuted like that. Surely this is the exception and not, and not the rule. Well, that's a question I want to ask. What should a normal Christian expect when it comes to persecution and suffering? Going into life, following Jesus, what, what should we expect is gonna come our way? Now look, there's a number of answers to that question. Uh, the first one, I think, is kind of a religious answer to that question, and here's the way it works. A religious answer to that question, and by that I mean like the answer that many people who come from kind of a religious tradition that emphasizes a quid pro quo arrangement with God, you know, like if I do good things for God, he will give me good things in return. Now there's a lot of people who exist in the church that, that work on that assumption. So if something goes wrong in their life, what they think is I did not worship him right. I'm not receiving the blessings Therefore, I must have done something wrong. I need to seek out whatever this wrong thing is, fix it, as if God's standing up there, you know, like I am with my dog, trying to get her to turn around in a circle, and she's doing everything, like shake a paw, roll over, you know, you're holding the treat. No, no, I want you to turn in a circle. Turn in a, she didn't have a clue. Some, sometimes that's what we feel like. God, what do I need to do in order for you to bless me in this way? Just tell me what it is. Give more money, do more stuff, whatever. But if something bad happens in your, this is Job's friend's approach, right? If something bad is happening in your life, it's because you did something wrong to warrant, warrant it because the way the world works is this quid pro quo arrangement with God. There's lots of people who would, say that, persecution and suffering are basically my fault then. But you shouldn't expect them normally. There's a way out of it, and that's just worshiping God right. That's a religious answer. Okay, here's, here's an answer that's more kind of common Christian. Like faithful people who are like, yeah, I really wanna serve Jesus, and I know that first viewpoint is not a gospel viewpoint, but I believe in the gospel, but they... Instead, what they do is they say, well, you know, I believe that in the world there is, there is a will of God, right? You know, out here, if I'm, if I'm living out here, I'm out of the will of God, right? I'm sinning out here. But there, there are lots of things I can be doing inside here. And this, these are all non, not sinful, but I need to be in the center of God's will. I just wanna be right in the middle of it. So if I'm over here, I'm gonna miss out on all the good things. The only way you get good things is if you're in the center of God's will. You know, there's a guy actually who wrote a book and in the book he said, look, I have to ask God what kind of cereal I should be eating every morning because if I get the wrong cereal, it's gonna mean my day is bad. So 
seriously, he said, well, no, I got up in the morning and I ate the Captain Crunch instead of the Fruity Pebbles and I didn't ask God ahead of time if God wanted me to eat Fruity Pebbles today. Just went with Captain Crunch and my day was so terrible and my wife's day was so terrible. My kid's day was so terrible. We came back in the evening and we said to each other, what happened? And then I remembered, I didn't pray about the cereal. I'm not teaching this. That's not a thing you should, you should do. But his argument is, look, I was outside the will of God. Because listen, listen, listen. If you're inside the center of God's will, everything goes right. When things aren't going right, you're not in the center. The reason everything's gone wrong in your life is because you chose the wrong husband. You chose the wrong college. You chose the wrong boots today. You chose the wrong church. You chose... So yeah, you're saved by grace, but you know, God is working up there and he's like, okay, you can find it. You can find the center of my will. I know I haven't revealed it to you. You need to read the signs. Sometimes common Christians are really uh, affected by the prosperity movement. I mean, we say we don't, I don't, we don't believe in, you know, name it and claim it, right? Blab it and grab it. We, that's not us. We don't say, I declare, decree and declare that I'm gonna, I, this building is mine. And we get the building. We, do, we say that. More conservative Christians, we say that's ridiculous, horrible. And yet, when things go wrong in our lives, one of the first things we say is, why, God? Which is an understandable response, but what, why are you asking why? It's almost like this is a shock to you. A shock to me that this, is, this bad thing has happened. Because our assumption is that everything goes, goes well. for Because God wants you happy, right? I mean, he, want, he wants you happy. And the way you, he has certain things that he's put in place, according to some of these teachers, that are means to happiness, right? So if you give a certain amount of money, God will make you happier, right? Or in, in money. Or if you, it's called the law of attraction. If you say something, I think that I'm wonderful and beautiful and smart and I'm going to get married soon, that that will come back to you. And we sometimes we reject stuff like that, but there's a seed of it that sort of gets inside of us. And we start assuming, like, that, like, like people who say that, that every day is a Friday. And that our best life can be now. And if your best life isn't now, and it feels like Monday all the time, we're thinking, what did I do, Lord? Show me where I messed up. Because that's the way it works, right? You do bad stuff and you get, you get bad stuff. My, my point in, in all of that is that many Christians, if you ask them what's the normal Christian life in regards to persecution and suffering, they would say, well, normally you never, you never get persecuted or suffer. And if you do, it's because you did something wrong. But then you go back to scripture and one of the things you find almost immediately is that all of that is rubbish. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you, says Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, because you're not of it, but pulled out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Oh, okay, First uh, Peter chapter four, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? Test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know what's going on here. Why is this persecution and suffering happening to me? Oh God, where did I miss your will? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, you know you're following Jesus when you experience the stuff Jesus experienced. Did he experience persecution and suffering? Yes. He did. God himself experienced it. So what is the normal thing for a Christian? Persecution and suffering. And I can just hear in the minds of so many people, I hate this church. It is such a bummer, right? Because seriously, I came here to get five ways to have a better night's sleep or something more, you know, positive, Right, that's what a lot of churches have decided to do is they decided to say, we're just gonna give you the positive stuff so that you just feel good all the time. But the truth is, in, in, what they've done is they've set you up for an expectation that will never be fulfilled. And when it's not fulfilled, you or I will freak out and we'll say, I don't want any part of this Jesus stuff. It means suffering and persecution. And yet that's exactly what it meant. Count the cost. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Look, here's why I'm trying to bum you out. We are likely to be faithful in persecution if we're not surprised by, but rather prepared for it. I say that again. We are likely to be faithful in persecution if we're not surprised by, but rather prepared for it. That's the way almost everything works, you know that? My son and I, when we, for last year, we were driving to Chicago, one of our cars, my wife stayed back, she was finishing stuff on the house and was gonna fly out later. And so we drove one of our cars out. And so I said to my son, hey, we should stop by, um, the Mount Rushmore, because it's in South Dakota. And he, he's like, cool. I've never been to South Dakota. I had no idea what was there except for Mount Rushmore. I thought it was all flat. And then just like there's the fake mountain or something, but it's quite beautiful. Black Hills and all these things. So we were driving through and you have to go off the freeway for like a half an hour and you end up winding up and you get to Mount Rushmore and you keep driving. And the whole time you're thinking to yourself, where are the faces? I gotta see the faces. 
And so uh, you drive up there and you get to the, to the place and they, and they say, okay, we're gonna charge you whatever, 20 bucks to come and see the faces. And on the hillside, I could see the faces and they were like tiny. They just little, if you've been there, just little faces. I don't know what I was expecting. The whole time I was thinking, no, they gotta be bigger than that. Like, there's no way people drive this far off a freeway to look at that. Like it's, really? So I asked the guy, is, is that it? Or is this just like the junior version of it? You know, like, is there one around the corner? No, what are you talking about? It's that. And there's 20 bucks. Yeah, oh yeah, 20 bucks. Is there anything else to do? Well, we've got some trails you can walk around. Like in the woods, you can just walk around in the trails. Yeah, for 20 bucks. Uh-huh. Okay, we'll see you later. We just drove, drove home or drove on. Now, listen, you might think, how dare you? That's our nation's history you're talking about, mister. And you might have gone to the... To, to, to the uh... Now, I'm thinking Grand Canyon because that's worth going to, but I'm... You might have gone to, to Mount Rushmore and thought it was magnificent, but do you see why I'm let down by it? I had this enormous expectation for Mount Rushmore. People talk about it like it's this really, really big deal. And then I get there and I'm like, but it's not, at least not to me. You might think it's magnificent because how do they do that? But you're, I'm telling you, your expectation is probably a little lower than what mine was. But that's the way the world Works. If you go into a movie and you expected it to be great and it's, you know, an eight out of 10, you're like, eh, it wasn't so good. But if you go in thinking this is gonna be absolute trash and you come out and say, it wasn't absolute trash. I thought Top Gun was okay, right? We're likely to be faithful in persecution if we're not surprised by, but rather prepared for it. But be prepared for it then. If I can tell you that you're gonna arrive at the Christian life and the thing you're gonna see is difficulty. There's remarkable glory on the other side and a companion through it who loves you and will care for you and be there always and a church and fellowship and great, you know, early looks into what heaven will be like, but it's a bit of a grind. Plan for it. Charles Spurgeon uh, said it quite well. He said, uh, soldier of Christ, if you enlist, you will have to do hard battle. There's no bed of down for you. There's, there's no riding to heaven in a chariot. The rough way must be walked. Mountains must be climbed. Rivers must be forded. Dragons must be fought. Giants must be slain. Difficulties must be overcome. And great trials must be borne. It is not a smooth road to heaven. For those who have gone but a very few steps therein have found it to be a rough one. It's a pleasant one. It's the most delightful in all the world, but it's not easy in itself. It's only pleasant because of the company, because of the sweet promises on which we lean, because of our beloved who walks with us through all the rough and thorny breaks of this vast wilderness. But Christian, expect trouble. If I had no trouble, I wouldn't believe myself one of the family if I never had a trial, I wouldn't think myself an heir of heaven. Children of a God must not, shall not escape the rod. Look, earthly parents may spoil their children, but their heavenly father never shall his. 
whom he loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he has chosen. His people must suffer, therefore. Expect it, Christian. If thou art a child of God, believe it, look for it. And when it comes, say, well, suffering, I foresaw thee. Thou art no stranger. I've looked for thee continually. You cannot tell how much I will lighten your trials if you await them with resignation. In fact, make it a wonder if you get through a day easily. If you remain a week without persecution, think it a remarkable thing. If you should, and if you should perchance live a month without heaving a sigh from your inmost heart, think it a miracle of miracles. But when the trouble comes, say, aha, this is what I've looked for. It's marked on the chart to heaven. The, the rock is put down and I will sail confidently by it. My master has not deceived me. Yeah, you, get, you give up the faith if you if you're surprised by the real Christian life. So don't be surprised. Persecution's expected. All right, persecution's clarifying. These next two are much quicker. <laughs> persecution is clarifying. Let me show you the second verse, right? Acts 8, 1 to 3. They have this scattering. Everybody's going everywhere. The only people who are staying behind are the apostles. And it says that devout men... Very important, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation. So they're burying and they're making great lamentation over him. That is a crazy, amazing verse. Most of which we just are like, yeah, this seems great. Here's why it's crazy and amazing. A little bit of history about uh, Jewish tradition regarding the dead. L leaving a dead body out without a proper burial was the height of indignity for the deceased. If you wanted to shame the deceased and their family, you would leave the body out overnight. This is why Jesus was gathered up and cared for. If you don't have family to do that, you, you, you hope that your dear friends and others would come and gather you. Now, here's the problem. If they come and they gather you and they give you a proper burial, what they are saying to everyone around is that I am as close to this person as family is. That I share this person's perspective, world. That's why all the disciples left Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea was doing a crazy thing when he gathered Jesus up and said, no, I, he will be with me. But the others didn't want to align themselves with Jesus in that time because to align themselves with Jesus would mean that they might get the very thing that Jesus got. So if you gather the dead up, a guy who was killed for blasphemy, you would basically be saying to everyone, he's, he's with me. Now, that, that might be okay, because you can gather him kind of quietly and go off to the corner. But if you do what mourning is, the kind of mourning that's supposed to be done. See, if you hang out with any people from that part of the world, you'll know that mourning requires tearing of clothes. You wear sackcloth, and you lament loudly. Alas, alas, alas. You do this for up to a month. Sometimes you hire professional mourners to help you because you cared a lot about this person. So what are these guys doing? Uh, devout men, they gathered up, buried him, and then they made great lamentation. A 
Celeste, Celeste. Dude, it's like they're putting a big sign up that says, hey, come get us next. And you see now why they're called the devout. Would you hide publicly, sorry, hide or publicly align yourself with a dead blasphemer? Like if you were in this situation, what, which, would, which would you do? Devout men, though, they chose to align themselves with him. So instead of hiding in a bunker safely, these guys aligned themselves with, Jesus, with uh, Stephen and with the Jesus that he died for. You see how persecution is close. See, when persecution comes upon a person, it ends up being a dividing line. It will end up proving whether or not you're going to stick with the person who's being persecuted or you yourself are gonna keep going or you're just gonna ditch. Like it's, it's a clear moment. When, when everything is going great and the seas are calm, everyone can sail everywhere. But when the, when, when the, the waves come up and the winds start to blow, it, it's a clarifying thing for a boat. Those who can't handle it, who aren't prepared for it, they take off. But the ones who are prepared, they, 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 keep, they keep going. It's a clarifying thing, and it has been an all over the place. So at 2 Timothy 4, here's what Paul says at the end of his life. He says, do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly for, listen about this guy, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul's in prison. He needs the guys to come and provide him food and clothing and all that he needs in prison. The government doesn't do that for you then. And so Paul's saying, oh, Demas, you need to come do this for me. And Demas is like, I can't, because to do so would be to align myself with you. So I'm going to Thessalonica. Because he loved this world. It's a clarifying thing. It's a clarifying thing. In Mark, uh, he's talking about this parable of the soils that I mentioned. You know, seed goes out, and one of them lasts on the thorny soil. And it, these are the ones, he says, who are sown on, sorry, rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. So somebody who's not like the guys at my evangelism booth, they bring it on and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna follow Jesus. But they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It's, a clarifying, it's clarifying. It's a massively clarifying thing. It's easy to follow Jesus when everything goes our way. But it's what we do when the heat turns up that counts. All right, last one. Persecution is under control. Here's the end of this passage. Uh, but Saul was, look at these words, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. First, first of all, please note, his ministry of Jewish protection, he's trying to protect the law, he thinks he's righteous, his ministry is exhaustive. He is going house after house. Like it's, like it's Halloween for him. Are there any Christians here? <laughs> Trick or treat, right? 
come here, you're with me. And when he, when he got some Christians, it wasn't what they normally did in these days, which is give me the men and the ladies can stay behind. No, men and women, and we're taking all of you and we're gonna go and kill you. All of you. And you can see then why, why words like this are used. He, he was ravaging the church. He was dragging off them. These words are used in other parts of the Bible to talk about uh, an animal. He, he's, he's, he's a leopard. I saw a leopard the other day on Instagram dragging an alligator out of the water and the alligator was going crazy, but the leopard would not let go. That's what he's doing. The Christians are trying to get away, but he's dragging them off, ravaging them, tearing them limb from limb. This, this Paul, if I were a Christian in that particular moment, I would have said the question that I raised before, because I know myself well enough. I would have said, Lord, what is happening? A wild animal is destroying your church. Where are you? I would have said of that when he was dragging me out of my house. How can you permit this wild animal to destroy your church? But here's what's crazy. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts and you ask what was promised about what was gonna happen with these Christians, you will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You can read from Acts 1-9 all the way through the end of chapter seven and every single thing that takes place happens in Jerusalem. They've not gone anywhere until God uses a wicked, Saul, animalistic ravaging the church to scatter the Christians all over the place. And when they go all over the place, Acts 8, 4, they share the gospel with everyone else. You know the next passages in Acts 8 describe how there's a guy, Philip, who goes to Samaria, and then there's a guy who's talking to an Ethiopian eunuch. It's almost like Luke is trying to say, don't, don't you guys see? They didn't see when this Acts 1, 8 was given. They didn't see how it was going to be fulfilled in Acts 8, 1. They didn't think it was gonna be fulfilled by a great persecution against the church so that they scattered through Judea and Samaria and yet God knew that's precisely what he was going to do. So, so let's back up. In other words, the most evil thing that Paul could do was basically serving the end goal of God himself. The wicked things that people do in the society, the things they do against God, God is so sovereign that he can take those things, use them to further the purposes that they're fighting against. Oh, if, 
Saul's wicked persecution of the church was God's means of sending the gospel from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. So that means that the stormy winds of persecution merely fan the flames of the gospel. There's two views you can take then on the matters involving your life, my life, the church's life in the world. There's two views. You can take the earthly view and the earthly view is this is totally out of control. Why would you possibly let somebody do this to your church? But there's a heavenly view where God is like, this is totally in control. I planned it from the foundations of the world so that it would achieve the purposes that I've set down. And in the end, you will all see it. But right now, you only see that much. You, you only see that, that much. Okay. If you're in a traffic jam kind of near O'Hare, which happens, you're in a traffic jam near O'Hare. Sometimes you're just sitting there and you're like, what in the world? This is ridiculous. Why am I sitting here so long? You know, the people who pull out in the side lane and look down as if like, I can see something. The rest of us don't know it, but you're gonna figure it out. So they look down and you're like, this is dumb. I don't understand. You get angry and you're frustrated. All oh, you stupid drivers and blah, 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 blah. And you get frustrated because you see, you know, this much. But if you are an airplane and it takes off from O'Hare and it takes a vantage point from above, you can look down and you can see that there was a four-car crash and they are trying to save the life of three people just ahead of you. If you know that, you will not get frustrated. If you don't know it, you will. So there's two viewpoints. There's the viewpoint that says, I only know this much because I'm only looking at the back of a Honda Odyssey. <laughs> or the wide view that says, oh, I can see why this is happening, how it led into it, and I can see that there's a good reason for that traffic jam to be taking place. And when I see it from that point of view, I'm at peace, but when I'm down here, I'm at inner war. Imagine somebody's screaming in an apartment and you walk across and there's a keyhole. Remember keys? There's a keyhole. And you look through it and somebody runs straight across, from, across screaming. And you're like, oh my gosh! And you're freaking out. And you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But inside the apartment, when you can see everything, the husband is just playing tag with his wife. Or whatever. But you're making massive judgments based upon what? This much knowledge. Well, I can see that she's run straight across there. Therefore, she's in danger for her life. But there's a viewpoint that puts it in context that makes it make sense. You have every, at every turn in your life and in my life, we have a decision to make whether we are going to see it from the earthly view, which we have access to, which is only a keyhole, which is only in line in traffic, or we can hold our hands open to God and say, I know you see this better than I do, and you will achieve your ends through it. John Piper said recently that You probably know only two things that God is doing in your life when the truth is that he's doing 10,000 at that moment. 
And of course that's right, because you and I, in our limited viewpoint, don't have access to the myriad and magnificent plan and wisdom of God that he established before all ages and will be proven right at every turn. So you and I, let me just finish here. You, you and I, I know you're like this. I'm like this, holding our fists frustrated with God. What is going on here? Why are you doing this? It didn't turn out like I planned and I don't want it to be this way. And we're bitter and we continue in our lives and we love Jesus and we want to follow him, but we're not sure we can trust him because of those things that went on. And the thing that I want more than anything else for you and for me is for our fists to be pried open by the grace of God so that we hand God our worries and problems and say you're wiser. There is a peace that is offered to you and to me when we make that move from fist to open hand. Oh, I pray that would be what happens to you today, this week, or soon. He is wiser. He is wiser. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for your wisdom. I am frustrated with your wisdom because I don't always see all of it. And as a result, I get frustrated. And yet we come across these passages. I spent this last year of my life at Harvest has basically been me preaching passages about your providence over and over and over again. And it must be because you want these dear people to hear that. But under the surface, we must all have so much bitterness and frustration about how things have turned out. And yet, God, would you just release our hands? Jesus, would you come and hold our hands and pull them open, gently pull them open and say, I can be trusted. You can give this to me. I know you don't know, but I, you can give this to me. And you will see, you will see in time. So grant us that. Spirit, come comfort us Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.